This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing our work, Session 2, Implicit Bias. Dr. Claire Morse of the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance leads a discussion on implicit bias, what it is and how we can identify it when it comes to race. The Doing Our Work monthly series brings together local experts to present and lead dialogue on concepts to help develop a firmer understanding of the roots and nature of racial inequity and what we can do about it together. Thanks, Julie, and thank you very much to all of you who've come. Hold it closer, yes. Uh, It's really very important for us all to be here doing our work. And yes, there is a lot of work to do. So together we can do it. They uh, provided some words of context. Um, I I couldn't endorse them more strongly. I hope that before the evening is over, you will see in some greater detail the kinds of things that he was talking about. So, uh, we all heard, well, I shouldn't say that. Many of us may have heard Bay talk about the disparities that are existing across all the service sections in our country, showing that white people come out ahead, black people come out at the bottom, brown people somewhere in the middle. He talked about that as the groundwater that is, all the water is bad, it's all permeated by. Uh, disproportionalities or disparities in outcomes. And um, we wanna, I want to explore some reasons why that groundwater might be bad, and, but to make very clear that part of the groundwater, uh, the outcomes that are, that are shown in that groundwater can be addressed by understanding implicit bias better than maybe we do right this minute. Um, and we see that the second presentation, which Bay also did, was a presentation about the social construction of race, a concept which really doesn't have biological meaning, but but has a social meaning. And again, it's a construct with a hierarchy of white people better, people of color less good. Uh, and again, corresponding to the disparities that are in the, uh, the many systems. So this is a part of a big picture. And remembering where this came from, Julie referred to it somewhat, this, the Community City Working Group decided after the June meeting that it would be good to continue something in, in discussing race throughout our community. So part of that is this seven-part series. So again, a big picture coming from a group that is aimed at trying to improve community police relations, which we know aren't always so good. So that's, that's where we start. And um, I, I wonder, oh, I do have one quick thing to say. There may be some young people, younger than I am, in this audience who might be tweeting. If they are, 
uh, we did have one member of our of our caucus who was going to, but then she unexpectedly left town. So I'm not sure there's a tweet a person tweeting, but if there is tweeting, um, those of you those of you like me who aren't exactly sure how you do this or why you would do that. Um, <laughs> should be assured that the, the people who do it will be happy to explain it to us later, and that this is not rudeness. This is a part of, of a way of communicating what's going on as it goes on, and that there might be a longer conversation taking place in the clouds or wherever, uh, the raindrops tonight maybe, and, and that's fine. So please don't be offended and don't think if anybody's tweeting it's necessarily rude. Okay, so I'm going to talk about implicit bias, and that's a very individual thing. Each of us, I am going to try to establish, will has it, and it's not doesn't make us bad people to have implicit biases that are negative. In this case, negative toward people of color. It's part of the culture. It's part of where we live. It'd be, it's almost impossible not to have them, whether you're white or, or dark, darker skinned, um, because constantly we're being addressed at, at levels we aren't necessarily conscious of, and we are absorbing those through brain structures. So um, I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. And just to fill in a tiny little bit about what Julie said, my um, history, I taught at Guilford College. I trained as what was called a physiological psychologist at the time. It's now more like cognitive neuroscience. But it's, we studied brains, and we did you know, terrible things to living animals. And uh, so I kind of come at this from a, a rather different perspective, even though the bulk of the data that I'm going to talk about and refer to are social psychological data, I'm starting from the physiological background. So with some luck, we will see a slide. That's a slide of a human brain uh, taken this way. So this part. Um, in the front is the frontal cortex, and right behind it is the prefrontal cortex. That wrinkly stuff is all called the cortex. It's wrinkled because, if you think of it this way, it's a very large sheet of cells, but because this is smaller than the sheet of cells, it has to be folded up to fit into our skull. So that's why the wrinkly stuff. And the part at the front, and that's this, not, not, not where that knot is, but the part at the front is uh, the frontal cortex. And if we are thinking, as in, you know, listening to somebody talk, or trying to figure out what to have for dinner, or how to get your flat tire fixed, or whatever, you're using the frontal cortex. It's sometimes called the, the part, or it's involved in executive function, making decisions, choosing what to do, making sure that the values that we hold, which are probably stored, the, the construction of them is probably stored in the frontal cortex, making sure that what we do corresponds with what we want to be doing. And that's very explicit. We can talk about what our values are. We can say, I believe in justice. I believe in fairness. I believe in non-discrimination, etc." 
That, however, isn't the only thing that goes on. And um, in the next slide, uh-oh. <laughs> All right, we'll worry about that in a minute. Okay, thanks. In the next slide, what, what we will see, maybe, is a cut brain, and it will show that there is a part of the brain that's the, yeah, that's it, if you can get that one up there. The, there's a part of the brain that's connected to the spinal cord, and it's called the brain stem. Yes, that's it, thanks. And it, <laughs> Thank you, I'll probably need it. Um, it's called the brain stem, and it's involved in vital functions, breathing, blood pressure control, those kinds of things that keep us alive. It's also involved in emotions. And a lot of the things that we experience have an emotional context or, or component to them so that associations are formed that have often have a positive or negative quality to them. So if you think about what the smell of baking cookies is, you know, when it's baking, oh boy, that smells good. That maybe reminds you of a snowstorm and hot chocolate after you come in and you're all wet from playing out in the snow. That's mine. Um, but they have, those are stored in the part of the brain that's down toward the bottom. It's called the amygdala, well, the limbic system, the emotion system, and parts of it are um, the amygdala and the thalamus and various other parts, but that's evolutionarily old. It's a part of the brain that's been there for a long time in evolution. Some, some psychologists call it the reptile brain. And most of what goes on in it, we don't, aren't aware of. It's unconscious. So the unconscious part of what we're thinking, feeling, and doing is what, what I'm focusing on. And it's where the implicit, not explicit, meanings are. Now, um, I asked some of, I sent out a homework, you might have gotten the homework. How many of you took the implicit association test? Great, okay, and um, let's see. So that's fewer than half. Um, we'll talk more about the implicit association test in a minute. And of those of you who took it, um, how many of you found that you had some degree of preference for white? Uh-huh. Me too. Um, sorry. And how many of you, in doing that little thought experiment that I asked you to do with three situations where you first imagined a person of color uh, coming to your door, being your boss, or whatever, and then to imagine the same situation and, and imagine and think about your reactions if that were the case, and then to change the scenario so that you thought about a white person in the same context. How many of you found that you had different feelings when it was a white person versus a black person? Oh, nobody. Yeah, okay. Some of us did. I know it's embarrassing to say this. I almost said close your eyes, but um, <laughs> but. Uh, and if, if you watch the Sarah James video, you'll see that it isn't just us who have these, this difference. And it isn't just we who are feeling that, oh, this is not good. I don't like this. I don't want to feel that way. I don't, I don't believe that. 
this is not welcome feeling. Where'd this come from? I don't want it. Get it out of here. How do I deal with this? That is important, and we'll see. It can be done, but it's a continuous process. I think of implicit as, well, I won't go there right now. Okay, so um, we have the brain that has two systems. It has this um, cortical system, which is explicit, value-driven, learned, discussed, probably came from your parents, from your education, from any religious upbringing you had, from conversations with peers, etc. And I think it's safe to say that all of us in this room share the idea that discrimination against people of color is not what we want to do. And those disproportionalities that, that uh, we see in, in virtually every system, that's not where we want to be. This shouldn't be. It's not right. Um, but we also now find out that we have internalized negative feelings toward people of color. Those are called implicit associations. And um, they color what we do. Now, there's um, one more part of the brain that, that I'm going to illustrate, maybe. Uh huh. Did anybody have any particular reaction to that? Say what? What's what's reaction did you have? Louder. Repulsion. Get me out of here. I want to leave. Fear. Maybe did anybody kind of startled? Yeah, yeah. A snake on the screen. This is a good thing. Would have been right there. Uh uh. We we'd run, but. So that response is pretty much hardwired. That is to say, pretty much everybody has it. Um, I happen to really like snakes. And in spite of that, when I see one out in the wild, the first thing I do is jump and be startled. But after that, nobody ran out the room. Nobody shouted. Nobody fainted, I hope. Um, so we can control that response. We know that we're in a group, a place where there aren't any snakes on the floor, and this snake is not going to hurt us. But if we were outside, out in the woods, walking along a path, and we saw a snake like that, uh-uh, some shrieks, some runs, some jumps, some fright, some whatever, we'd leave. So we now think, okay, they're unconscious responses, but we can control them. They're conscious things that we definitely control. And these two systems are both at play all the time. Now, um, I want to do one more thing, which is to introduce another very quick response, which is very much learned. What I'm going to do is show you a slide. And for those of you who can see it, um, well, or well enough, when I say start, I want you to read the words that I, I want you to say the words that are on the slide. But what you're really telling me is what color are the words written in? So you're going to see words, I think there are five across, and I think there are five or six lines. And your task 
when I say go, is to say the color that the words are printed in. Okay? Everybody good with this? Okay. Ready? Go. Very good. Was that hard? No. Who do you think might not be able to do that as easily as you could? Colorblind people. Who else? Oh, blind people, okay. <laughs> That's not fair. Who else? Illiterate people, or literate in another language. If you couldn't read, or you couldn't read English, this would be uh, easy. I mean, what? I can't, let's uh, just say the colors, right? They wouldn't be um, reading, they'd just be saying the colors. Okay, I want you to do it one more time. And the same, the same principle, I'm going to, I hope, get to the next slide, and then I'm going to say go, and you tell me the color that the words are written in. The color the words are written in, all right? What happened? What what was going on here? It's dissonant. It's different. It's it's says red, but it's actually green, or whatever the example was. Why is it dissonant or disparate or different? What caused that? Or why are you saying? Yeah. Anybody? Oh, sure, and you learn to read, right? I mean, all of us are readers, and how many times have we read the, the word red, regardless of what color it's printed in? Red, you know, how many times? Many, many, many. It's a learned, highly over-practiced <coughs> skill. How many times have you been asked to tell the color of the font or the print or the lettering? Right? I can't remember that I've been done that, except in this particular thing, which is called the Stroop test. If anybody later wants to go on and look it up, play with it, whatever, um, it's the Stroop test. Okay, so there's a dissonance, there's a, a difference. I can read the word, and I do that so often that I almost automatically read the word. But I have to, what do I do? Well, let's try this again. This time, when I. Um, go back to that page. I want you to start at the bottom and try the same task and, you know, say the color, uh, not, the, not read the word, but say the color and see how you do this time. Okay, go. Okay, any difference this time? You slowed down. And what else did you do? You really looked. 
I don't know, sometimes people have a, a kind of a trick. They look only at the bottom corner of the word or they kind of squint so they don't see it so sharply or something like that. Anybody have any other things they did besides um, slow down and really look and try to not say the first thing that came to your mind? What's this showing us? Well, it's showing us that we can learn something to make it very speedy, very quick, almost automatic. When, when red is written in red, it's a piece of cake. When red is written in green, we have to slow down and we have to not say the first thing that we want to say and instead think and then maybe change our focus or reevaluate our focus and then say the color instead of the word. But so my point is to, well, several things. But first, we learn these things, they become automatic. We can, if we slow down and think, we can change what we're first inclined to do. So it's a learned habit and it's changeable. We learned it, we can govern it, we can control it. We can take up strategies and tactics that will keep us from falling into the red is red, but red when it's in green, why well, I'm supposed to say green. Fine. Now, let's go back to the implicit association test for a minute, because for a long minute, because um, that's where implicit biases come from. And implicit associations, associations, some of you took general psychology way back when, and you remember Pavlov and his dog, and the dog learned to associate uh, food with a bell, and then the bell sounded, and the dog salivated, and all those things that you remember. Well, that's an association, and those associations are encoded in that amygdala limbic, limbic system that I talked about that's related to the snake. They're not encoded so well in the prefrontal and frontal cortex where our values are encoded. So understanding something about implicit bias allows us to understand something of the disparity between what I might what I want to do and what I might first think of doing based on my implicit associations. Um, those of you who took the test, oh, let me quickly explain the test. Uh, you see a, a picture, well, you, you see black faces and white faces, and you're asked to associate adjectives with black faces and white faces. And some of the adjectives are positive in meaning and, and emotional connotation, and some of them are negative. And they're typically drawn from the stereotypical uh, view of black and white people that's culturally um, promulgated. This test was developed, I think, about 20 years ago by some psychologists who uh, include um, a, a woman whose background is Indian, as in the Indian subcontinent, and a couple of American-based and born and brought up Americans. Um, so they have are different skin tones. And they've run used this as implicit association test for years. There are hundreds, probably by now thousands, of studies in which this has been done. And I encourage you to go do it because um, it's revealing. And and the task of a person who takes the test is to 
using two fingers, so this is tricky, using two fingers to press either the right or the left based on whether the word should be is associated with the black face on one or the other side of the screen. Half the time the black face is on the left side, half the time the black face is on the right side. And the words are sometimes the positive words and sometimes the negative words. And the data are the times that it takes to press the key when your association is a white face with a positive word or a black face with a positive word. So there's a time difference. The time it takes to, to pair a positive word with a black face is longer than the time it takes to pair a positive word with a white face. And that, now, it's set up by, you know, the diabolical psychologists who make sure that the black face is on the right an equal number of times and the positive words are on the right an equal number of times and you use your fingers equally and all those things so you can't say it's because I'm left-handed or because I can't see well or something like that. Because that cuts across everything. 90% of white people in a recent study have st strong, moderate, or mild as positive associations to, wh to whites, preferences for whites. I don't, and this, this was a study I'll tell you more about in a few minutes. And 50 or 60% of people of color have positive associations to white. Slow, small, medium, or large preferences for white. That's implicit bias. Okay, good. It's probably not a snake, right? You were going to bring that. Oh, yeah, I did. So now, if I have this positive association to white, what difference was this, would this make? What difference might this make? Well, my first association on seeing a white person is, oh, a good person, could be a friend, could be, a, you know, I could go ice skating with this person, or maybe we should talk about, we'll probably share a lot of interests, et cetera, et cetera. My negative associations with a black person, what might that result in? Well, what about the woman who sees a young black man across the way and clutches her pocketbook closer and crosses the street? Or what about the um, mother who grabs onto her child, tighter, small child, when she sees uh, an African-American person? Or what about just um, not talking? to the African-American person? Or what about thinking the African-American person is not as good, whatever positives you want to put with that? That's implicit bias. None of us want to have that, I believe. And none of us is bad if we do have it. And I would argue none of us is avoiding it. Implicit bias is there. Virtually all Americans have it. Implicit associations are built by associations in the media, experiences we have as children, things that happen that we aren't talking about, 
that we don't even recognize, but they're still going on and they're still being recorded and they're still having an impact in how we act. Well, okay, let's think. What more, what other, what specific actions might be impacted by those implicit biases? Um, here are a few that... Uh, that we well here are a few things to to say about this. Um, what happens in, for example, um, a store? A person of color comes into the store. What does the store owner do? Follows the person, gets suspicious, watches, checks. Um, what happens in school with a little black kid? can't do the work, might cause trouble, isn't going to fit in, better sit him, especially if it's a little boy, put him right under my nose so I can make sure that he doesn't do anything disruptive. What other kinds of things? Well, think of the thing, the systems that Bay Love talked about, health care. Could there be any effect of implicit bias in healthcare? Yeah, lots, right? Tons. Could there be any in education? Well, I already mentioned at least one, but more than that. We saw it on that video that Julie referred to. Could there be any in child welfare? Could there be any in... Um, uh, the court system, etc. Could I have it? Could I be making these assumptions? Yeah. Could everybody in this room be making these assumptions? So just for a moment now, I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and whichever direction you want and um, explore just for a couple minutes whether you, what in the recent, your recent experience or imagined experience might have been affected by implicit bias or implicit association. So just take a couple minutes and exchange views about this. And if you, you know, if you have some questions or whatever, we're going to check in for a minute about that. I guess I'll ask, um, did anybody feel like it was impossible to see cases of implicit bias, either in your life or in your imagination? No. Everybody found something to talk about? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a good start. Now we recognize, we admit and recognize that implicit bias is possibly at work, and that is crucial to being able to deal with it. Those who deny implicit bias are actually more likely to be influenced by it than those who accept it, acknowledge it, and pay some attention to it, which is a very troubling state of affairs, particularly as we're having the discussions begun by the, perhaps begun by the New York Times article or, or other kinds of challenges like that. So maybe uh, one or two or three peop groups would, 
Anybody want to volunteer either a puzzle or a particularly powerful example or uh, something that came to you came out in your discussion? Go ahead. Um, Claire had mentioned the New York Times article, and I think the way people responded to the New York Times article really could be determined by implicit bias. And as certain names came up in the article, that people were willing to discount the article because of their involvement in the article. Excellent example. Okay, well, let, let me just, uh, so I said one thing that is very important for us to recognize. That denial of implicit bias is really a bad strategy because it leaves us vulnerable to being more influenced by it. So it's not what we like. It's not pleasant. It's something about us that we don't like, that we wish we didn't have, but we do. We can do something about it, but we can't do anything about it if we start by denying that it exists. Okay, now let's do a little practice, particularly as two or three people have already mentioned the um, New York Times article. And I'm going to just say, this is speculation. It's practice thinking about implicit bias. I am not saying that this is either certainly has occurred, though I'm pretty certain of that. But I'm certainly not saying either that it is only the, the only impact that might be going on. But the, the New York Times article started by describing the, an encounter between a police officer and the Scales brothers. And then later on in the article, it, des it described a second encounter in the Scales brothers. If either of those officers was impacted by implicit bias, the likelihood that they, those officers, would challenge the Scales brothers goes up because they think, without being able to say it, they're probably in trouble. They're probably making trouble. They're probably doing something wrong. They're probably not behaving the way they ought to behave. So they then judge things that the young men do based on that lens that they don't even know is in front of them and that they deny is in front of them. And I emphasize, these are not, I'm not saying these are bad police people. I'm saying that they are like all the rest of us, influenced by their own implicit bias. And if they deny it, they're more influenced by it. And we, who are not police officers, probably some of you in the audience are police officers, but we are also impacted by these kinds of things, and we're in the same boat. If we deny it, we're making it worse. Okay, first encounter between the officers and the Scales brothers is based on a unconscious association between young black men and something negative. They are, the officers are then, psychologists could say, primed to see what they're expecting to see and to interpret what they see according to the biases that they bring. All right, there's a letter now. So then let's just say the young men file a complaint and it goes to the chief of police. Could the chief of police be influenced by his in this case, implicit bias. Sure, 
And what would be the consequence? He would be less likely to believe the truthfulness or the validity of the complaint. He's going to be inclined not to, to dismiss it, to say the officers acted properly, etc. And again, I'm not saying that the chief is a bad person or a bad chief. I'm saying that the impact of the biases that are in us will create a tendency to undervalue what the young black men say and overvalue what the police officer says. Okay, the letter then, which is going around, I believe is addressed to the city manager. Could the city manager be impacted by his implicit bias? Yeah, same way. Well, fine. Maybe it gets to the Citizen Review Commission, same issue. At this point, as far as I know, um, the, there's been no judge involved, but could the judge be involved with implicit bias? Yeah. Could the media be involved in implicit bias, in the way they write the story, in the way they choose to, the vocabulary and so forth? Yes. Could these, this sequence of judgments, each made by good people trying to do their work, trying to do it well, but influenced by implicit bias, could it conceivably contribute to those disparities that Bay talked about? Right. Now notice, every one of those things is an individual decision. This is not addressing the institutional arrangements that are involved here. And we should be very clear that institutional things have to be changed, that institutions are full of history that is producing some of the disproportionalities and disparities. But within those institutions are individuals. And we are making the decisions. And particularly where the decisions are in cases of sort of, uh, let's say, maybe ambiguity or sort of, it's a little hard to be sure of this, then you really have fertile ground for implicit bias to play a role. Let's just think for a minute. When do you think implicit bias is most likely to be influential in what we think, say, or do? When you're afraid, when you're busy, or stressed, or distracted, or pressured by peers who have certain kinds of ideas in mind? <coughs> Sorry? Unfamiliar. unfamiliar territory, right? Ignorance, incomplete information, unfamiliar territory. All of those cases, all of those circumstances make for cases where implicit bias has a big role. I believe in the article, they, the um, article also covers some of the uh, offenses that are called resist, obstruct, or delay, the, the, uh, the officer. Am I right? Yes, yeah, some of you read it. Um, resist, obstruct, or delay. How do you determine exactly what that is? Is there a lot of space for implicit bias in that case? Mm -hmm. What about uh, disruptive behavior in children? 
Oh, right. What about disrespect? All of those areas where there's judgment involved, individual judgment, are just really gold mines, if you will, for the implicit bias to be at play. Now, let me just go back to the judge's case, because a judge is, you know, trained to be impartial, but still has, like all the rest of us, implicit bias. Okay, the judges um, in a particular court, I'm not going to maybe get this, a juvenile protective hearing, preliminary juvenile protective hearing. So uh, whether this child should stay in the biological family or be um, removed from the biological family and placed in a foster home or, or some, some alternative placement. Okay, um, in that case, the judges have developed what they call a bench card. And the bench card is designed by the judges to minimize the impact of their own implicit bias. In other words, here's a group of folks who realize, oh, we've got some work to do here. How can we improve our system in such a way that we are less impacted by implicit bias? Now, what do you think might, having, you know, having thought about this and imagined it and obviously talked about it, what do you think might be useful to have on a bench card? If, you, if judges were hearing a case where this child is in this family and here's the situation, should we keep the child in the family or take the child and put it in another family, in a, in a foster home? What, what would you want the judge to be sure to do to minimize implicit bias? Say it a little louder, please. Switch the race of the parties involved and be sure that the decision would be the same. If I can be um, kind of crude, play the race card, right? Be aware that race might be involved in, in this. Ask yourself or have the judge ask himself, herself, oh, could it matter, would it matter if this were a white child instead of a black child or a black child instead of a white child? Anything else? Do they ever read the case not knowing the race and then make a judgment and then see what the race of the family and child are? Do they ever read the case without knowing the race and then make a judgment based on that? I can't answer the question, but I can respond by saying that would be an interesting idea, wouldn't it? To do that and, and, and remove any of the evidence that might suggest the race of the child. Um, it might, yes. Good question, good possibility. Anything else? Take the age of the child. Sure, take the age of the child into account, but because, well. <clears throat> the bias could be related to a younger versus an older child. Okay, take, take. Individuate the child would be my general statement. Age, is it a female child or a male child? Is it a child who likes to play volleyball? Well, you know, learn something specific about the ch a lot specific about the child so that the judgment is made about the child, not about a black child or a white child, but specific kids. Right, those, yes? Uh, I was a judge, and I 
I be inclined to want to focus not on the child, but on the family and the potential foster family? And the question in mind is what the family is doing contributing to this child's problems or not. Okay, so uh, if he were the judge, he would want to focus on the not the child, but the family. Is what the family is doing contributing to the to the problems with the child or not? Both the foster the potential foster family and the current biological family. So what you're saying is look at the context in addition to the specific child. And the bench card includes that, and and also elaborates a little bit. What are the resources of the the biological family, what could they be supplemented? Um, has the process been followed step by step all the way through to make sure that no earlier choices or decisions were impacted by implicit bias such that the kid gets to the court and the situation hasn't been addressed earlier or certain pieces of information are absent or haven't been attended to. If we think back down the, the, the scales case, the way we I kind of went through that from the judge and the media and the, all the way down, so to speak, the chain of, of authority, same thing in the in the procedural steps. Has every single procedural step been followed in an unbiased fashion or in a fashion that is attentive to the potential of unconscious negative influences? So that suggests that there is, in fact, space and time for learning to control our implicit bias. Remember, we talked about learning to read, and we talked about the fact that these implicit associations are based on our experience growing up and every single day. And if they're learned, they can be unlearned. And if we have a habit, that's what a bias is, we can change the habit. Okay, good. Now we're in the, in the place where we can think about how do we change a habit? Well, how do you change a habit? Well, let's see. We've got a few suggestions from the bench card. Change the response. Think about a different context, i.e. white child versus black child, family, biological family versus uh, foster family. Think about individuals, not, not collectives, not groups. All white people are not the same. All black people are not the same. Think about individuals. And then practice. Practice not following your first response, at least not without thinking about it not without being sure that every single step is justified. Okay, now I'm going to let you, um, well, I'm going to finish, and then we can have discussion and, and questions. Um, one way to think about implicit bias is to think of it like it were a chronic disease, which it kind of is. It's not our fault if we get diabetes or cancer or some cardiac condition or some other condition that requires daily monitoring and uh, medication or practice or 
or whatever that might be required to keep ourselves as healthy as we can in a situation of a chronic disease. It's not our fault it doesn't make us bad people. However, if once we've gotten the diagnosis and we know what to do about it, then not doing that makes us irresponsible. It makes us uh, take a, you can't, ta I mean, you can, and I guess you die faster or suffer longer, but if you know that this is what's going on and you know what you could be doing about it, then you do it. And you do it every single day. And you maybe find support group to do it with, which is, for example, in the case of the White Caucus, you remember the White Caucus back there, we talked about the White Caucus. We get together and we try to help each other learn not to follow our implicit biases. We try to educate ourselves about what people do, about the history we haven't been taught, about the activities we could participate in which would be positive, and we try to do that all along. Do we do it well all the time? No. Do we know what to do all the time? No. Do we keep at it? Yes. We try to keep at it. We practice. So I think probably among you there are a few questions and a few comments and a few ideas about what we might do. So um, let's have some discussion. So it's hard to learn not to make that uh, the, the mistakes in the street test. And it's even harder if you're old than it is if you're young. <laughs> and so the, I guess the question is, the data from the street test uh, doesn't seem to give a reason for a lot of optimism about how we might handle uh, these biases. And especially when you're required, as you are in a strict test, to respond fast, um, as often we're told that police must. So um, I guess I don't feel entirely optimistic as a result of your having made that analogy. Help me out. All right, um, two things. Well, several things. First of all, um, I dispute the notion of how difficult it is to learn um, somewhat, but and I accept that it takes effort and it takes practice, but I, I believe, and I've seen some preliminary stuff, that if we did this four or five times, we'd get already measurably better. Now, I don't want to go uh, to eliminate implicit bias. I don't think so. I think what we're working on is controlling it, managing it, and minimizing it. A second thing is on um, in Wisconsin, remember I said something about 90% of white college students uh, showed a preference, uh, some degree of preference for whites. Um, that was based on an experiment that was done uh, two years ago at the University of Wisconsin by a, an investigator named Patricia Devine. She had 90 or so uh, white students. She divided them into two groups. One group, you know, psychologists, right? One group got an intervention. And what was the intervention? It was a training process. They taught, they taught these uh, 53, I believe, of the 91 students five strategies for minimizing the impact of, of implicit bias. Um, here's what they were. You'll recognize some of them because you already um, t 
told them, they were taught to change the stereotype response. In other words, stop doing what you do do and do something else. Uh, sorry? No. Um, replace the stereotype content with, more, with a different example. Um, instead of thinking in generalities, make a person an individual, take the perspective of the other person, and get to know more people from the group with whom, about whom you have a negative stereotype. So they taught these students this set of strategies for four weeks and tested them four and eight weeks later. And measured, their measure was the implicit associations test. And they found a significant improvement in scores eight weeks later. Now, these were people who, well, and here's an, a useful additional thing they learned. The more concerned the students were about the dis difference between their values and their implicit associations, the more progress toward less implicit bias, in other words, the more reduction in preference for white people over black people, they accomplished, if that's the right word. That's how they, so if you care more, you do better. And these were significant gains. The previous studies I've seen only were reporting this over a, a day or two days, but this was eight weeks later. So that's some positive stuff. Um, but yes, Walter, I don't think we'll, <laughs> I don't think we'll get rid of it. But we sure could do a lot better. I think we got one right here. Yeah. Um, I just want to um, say we're a pretty self-selected group, um, and uh, so you, you use the disease analogy, and I would like to suggest that this is a spiritual disease that requires a spiritual solution, which is very difficult when half of the quote-unquote spiritual bodies in our city are probably justifying implicit bias while we're trying to refute it. That's just a comment. It's a fair comment, and one might ask, okay, then, what is our work as white people? Our work really could be part of our work for sure is about ourselves, part of it is about our institutions, part of it is about other white people who might be in the, in the group of folks who deny that there is any such a thing or who are uh, themselves either bigoted or uh, outwardly prejudiced or, or, you know, doing things that are explicitly directed at penalizing people of color. That's, that's our work. That's part of our work. And I, I um, had you not said spiritual, I wouldn't have said this, but when Julie mentioned that, I think that's very true. I don't belong to any church or any other religious group, but I do think that there's a spiritual side to this. And I'm going to, I think another thing, um, Besides the spiritual healing, which we white people would achieve if we minimized our own implicit bias, we benefit in lots of other ways, too. If the systems that we're talking about improve for people of color, they're better for us. And then also our democracy is more true to its 
expressed ideals, and we have enormous talents that are being oppressed, and 40% of our population in this city or whatever, 14% of the population in our country, we're losing. Our kids are losing. Our grandchildren are losing. That's wrong. It's bad. So there is some self-interest in, in more than just the spiritual side. Um, I'm a 10 percenter through and through on several fronts, but um, I have sort of a strange relationship, I think, with the whole implicit bias thing because I was raised a Southern white kid and definitely have implicit bias. But I also am the parent of a young adult African-American male who has had many, many very negative encounters with police officers as a result of my son. And I've actually flipped my bias completely over the last 30 years to the point now that I'm working on trying to bring it back to center because I now assume that all police officers are out to get my son. I now assume that you know my bias has gone way the other direction, which isn't any healthier than what it was to start with. But I, I think what it shows is you can't flip it. It can't be flipped because mine was totally flipped, um, and it was flipped. It's been flipped by real world situations and and experiences. So I think that just you know hopefully I'll get it back to more center, and hopefully we don't flip so far the other direction. But it definitely can be influenced, and it can, definitely can change based on people's experiences. Thank you. I, um, I'm here to say I don't think it's as difficult as many people believe. Um, who do you have lunch with? Who shares your house overnight? Um, who takes a long trip with you? Who do your children invite over? I mean, it's not as hard as you think if, as you say, if you want this to be. And if you have a reason, a reason knowing that we are one. And I, I don't think it's as hard if people make an effort. And I, I would like to share one bias. Um, I've lived in a couple of countries, and I gained a bias about if I saw an American coming, <laughs> I was embarrassed and turned the other way. Um, I lived in a town where we were the first American family to live there. And it was such a privilege and such an absolute delight. And when I saw noisy, loud, um, I, I had a hard time with that. So I had to work on that. But um, we're all one. You know, we do the same things. We have the same goals. We want the same things for our children. Again, I'm not sure I need to comment on this, but I will in this case. I think the um, another part of the experience of being in, in the White Caucus is we learn to talk about race in a way that's um, based on our understanding of the history, of the concept, the construct, the history of wealth differences, et cetera, so that we educate ourselves and then the necessary condition has been met. 
the necessary condition to working together with other people, both people of color and other white people, to change the institutions that create this. And that is um, difficult, but it's, it's rewarding, and it does definitely put you in a place where you are being challenged and challenging your own implicit biases. And so I invite all of you who, um, who have be, are beginning to think, oh, I, I ought to get with this, we've got a white caucus that we can work with you on, um, and we welcome you all. So, uh, And the People of Color Caucus, I'm sure, would say the same to people of color in the audience. I have the, yeah, I just sort of want to second what she said. I was thinking that the more you interact with the unknown or the other, the less fearful I think these things just kind of disappear. If you and if you aren't in an environment, you can go to one, volunteer in a school that's predominantly African American. Or I know we're talking about predominantly African American white, but Greensboro has a huge influx of others. What about our inherent bias toward Muslims or even the Hispanics? Well, they do yard work or they um, go in places where you're with these people and uh, work with them. If you can't find a place, then volunteer someplace and get to know people as people. And I think then things start to disappear. But I, I think we also need to remember all these other different shades of skin that um, are in Greensboro and be aware of our biases towards them also. The Implicit Associations Test website has, I don't know how many current uh, examples, but it certainly includes Muslims and, and people of other and gender and body type and who knows, lots of different ones and all those are true. And again, I would just emphasize again that we not lose sight of the importance of the institutional issues but that, that in service to accomplishing the institutional issues, we need to figure out how to deal with implicit bias. Because each of us and each of the gatekeepers, each of the persons who are making decisions within those organizations are likely to need to be addressing their own implicit bias. Um, can I throw a wrench in this whole discussion here? <laughs> um, I do have a problem with, uh, because because all my life, and I did see, witness like most of us, segregation up close um, in the early 60s, um, and what I hear over and over and over again by well-meaning people and by politicians, and I tend to separate those two groups, um, <laughs> that I have black friends. I, I, I interact with, with African Americans. Um, I work alongside. And to me, that just doesn't really cut it. That does not do anything to lessen implicit bias. I think that it's a much deeper issue than that. And one thing I think as a society we've done is pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm sitting next to somebody who's a different color, therefore I've done my part. And I, th I see a danger in that. And the second thing I wanted to point out was um, there is a certain line that I think should be observed between uh, 
be uh, getting over the implicit bias, which is by far that that's important. But also, I see people that are moving into the area of cultural appropriation, and that's not appreciated. So I think that there are a lot of deeper issues here. But I do know that when I hear people say, I have black friends, I usually go, okay, who? You know, count them. And it's usually not what you would call friends. So I'm just saying, I think this is a much deeper issue than just uh, physical uh, closeness or proximity. So I just want, you know, I, I think it has to be thought through much harder. So, thank you. I, I think we all agree that having a black friend is not the answer to implicit bias, and more importantly, it's not an, an answer at all to the institutional arrangements that produce the disparities that Bay Love started this series out with. We see disparities in every single system of this country. Those disparities are what we have to change to get there we probably need to change some implicit biases, maybe lots of implicit biases. But the goal is racial equity in outcome. It's not having black friends or white friends. And yeah, if that's a wrench, I, it's a wrench. And if I made it seem like I only think that having black friends is the answer, I failed, because I don't think that. I think the real challenge is to get to a place where we can talk with and work with people who want racial outcome equality, equity. And when we get there, we will have learned to talk about race. And we'll probably be better about talking about implicit bias. Um, Claire, um, you uh, made it clear that in the end it comes down to institutional change. That whatever is stored up here and determined, well, what's unconscious here but conscious here, stored values, that is the consciousness that reflects one's experience and stored experience and the inheritance that we get from our families, our communities, or whatever. So you're right, it comes down to, to institutional change. Um, but here's my question. Does implicit bias also extend to those who understand the institutional changes that have to be made and are kept out of the discussion because there are fundamental assumptions about what those people think? For example, I mean, we have people here who are white, black, gay, lesbian, maybe a transgender person here, any number of differences. But I'm, I'm a democratic socialist, like Bernie Sanders. And for many years, I have studied the economy here, and I have made concrete proposals from time to time, and I've been involved in, in changes. But, but when it comes down to discussing institutional change, once you become conscious that you do have implicit bias and you're, and you're trying to work with that, you're trying to change yourself, 
but you're also trying to change the world around you at the same time. But then you become the victim of someone's implicit bias. I mean, I, that's what I'm feeling from this conversation. I'm getting so much out of it because I am open to it, but at the same time, I can't help but feel that when I say a city council meeting or I say in a community uh, uh, setting uh, or in my classroom that I think maybe on the basis of the evidence we need to do this, uh, and here we need to level the playing field so the officers who went after the Scales brothers the first time and had fundamental assumptions and then went after them again. In other words, the institutional changes mean changing the material conditions of life so as to uh, somehow impede these values that we stored up, store up, and keep creating more implicit bias. So I, I hope what I mean. Well, I think if you go to the website, um, the Implicit Associations Test website, I there certainly was one at one point pitching, I mean, pitting communists against somebody or other. And I don't know if they've ever done one with democratic socialists or socialists, but I'm guessing that, that they have. And I'm pretty sure that, well, wait a minute, we have um, in the, I believe in the article in the New York Times, Nelson Johnson might have been quoted. But anyway, we've gotten, in this very city, we have a 1979 episode, historical episode, in which communists, or perhaps communists, or, or near-communists were involved. And I think it's fairly safe to say that there were some pretty strong biases about those people. So I don't have any doubt that communists how many of us are women in this room? Are there implicit gender-related biases? Yeah, I mean, yes. We're functioning in multiple systems, and all of us are within, um, you know, we're whatever our gender is, we're whatever our age is, whatever our skin tone is. Yes, it's going along a lot of those lines, and political ones for sure, and class lines. I know they've done uh, class implicit associations, and there are plenty of negative associations associated with, uh, sorry, um, uh, attached to l people with less money. Um, so yeah. I mean, and to be clear in our own minds that when we're thinking about this, we ought to be, who said it over here, considering all the facts, not just some of them. And considering, so maybe our bench card, so to speak, has to have a lot of different things on it. This is getting pretty complicated, but part of it is that awareness that this might be going on and maybe the person who has who has whose label is communist also has good ideas we should you know like the judge thing says you know consider all the evidence supporting all of your conclusions all the evidence so okay just to be considerate of everybody's time, we've got about 828. Yeah, it's done. So, just last announcements, Julie. And don't forget to summon the, the next one. Oh, yeah, Julie. That's it. That's oh. What I wanted to say it was December 7th is the next one. Invite folks. We'll be happy to move into the sanctuary where there's more space. We will accommodate more and more folks. So, please invite them. Uh, again, that will be on race and wealth. Uh, Dr. Bob Williams from Guilford County and I believe Dr. Larry Morse will be leading that session. And let's again thank Claire Morse.